Hey, good morning, North Boulevard. Thank you for coming. Merry Christmas, those of you online. Glad you joined us. Merry Christmas to everybody. Here we are, just about to close out 2020. Hope you guys have a fantastic holiday season. So if you count the number of bones between your knuckles using your thumb, you'll end up with 12. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. And if you'll tick those off using your other hand, you'll end up being able to count to 60 by counting those bones. It's actually, uh, there's actually a name for this. It's called, it's kind of a weird sounding name. You have to forgive me. It's called sexagesimal. And many places in the world, in Africa and Asia especially, they still use that system. In fact, the base number 60 was evidently a predominantly used number in both Sumeria and in Babylon. So these are places from which Abraham came. And when you think about it, we still use some of those systems even today. For example, our compass has 360 degrees. It's based on the sexagesimal system. Our calendar, or our clock, I should say, is based on a sexagesimal system. That is, there are 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in uh, an hour. When you think about it, there's no reason why we would have settled on 60. I mean, why is there 60? Someone just arbitrarily picked that number. Well, they picked it based on that system. Even the angles that we use in our plane geometry are generally based upon the sexagesimal system. Here's why it matters. If you look at all the old ages that are recorded in Genesis chapter 5, so Genesis chapter 5 lists all these sort of primordial guys. They are literally primordial. That is, they're before the flood. So it lists all these primordial people and their ages, and their ages are in the 8s and 900 years. Most likely, they're using a sexagesimal system. In fact, probably using it in a symbolic way. Which means that when we read it, we wonder how a guy like Methuselah could be 969 years old. But in a sexagesimal system, it probably meant something very different, just lost on us. And I bring that up because when we read the story, this fascinating story that really only uh, takes up about five verses, I'm only going to pick two of them here, we're focused usually on the oddity of the age. Why did these guys live so long? But we might actually be missing the main point of the text, which is not how long they lived, but really two things. In fact, if you go through and read Genesis chapter 5, what should shock you, what should leap off the page, especially if you've just read Genesis 1, 2, and 3 first, is how many people died, not how long they lived. Because back in Genesis 2 and 3, we weren't supposed to die. So almost, well, not almost, but everyone except one, every one of the characters mentioned in Genesis 5, the story ends with, and he died. Until you get to this guy. The seventh, again, probably a metaphysical or symbolic number, or mystical number. The seventh in the generation through Seth is a guy named Enoch. We know virtually nothing about the guy. We know what's recorded here. The New Testament makes a, a reference or two to him. We know that all sorts of speculations have been offered, but really at the end of the day, pretty much all we know is what these verses say about him. His name is Enoch. And all the Bible says is he lived a total of 365 years, by the way, a nice sexagesimal number. And he walked faithfully with God, then was no more because God took him away. We just know this guy was so close to God that evidently, 
in some sense or another, he ceased to exist. He just was absorbed into God. He and God became so one with each other that there was just no more Enoch left. And so God took him. Here at Christmas time, a lot of us are facing a holiday season without some loved ones. We've had a lot of deaths. Uh, I counted, I've done eight funerals. I just that I've performed since the pandemic. Lots of funerals since then. Some of you have lost not just one, but both your parents in the last uh, couple of days. Uh, for a lot of us, Christmas time is probably going to be exceptionally difficult. You're tough people. You're, you're deep people. So I know you're going to get through it. But I just want you to know something. God is going to be with us this Christmas. When we talk about Emmanuel, we use that language. We sing songs, O Emmanuel. The phrase in Aramaic and in Hebrew simply means God is with us. God's here. And when I think about God being with us, my mind always scrolls back to Enoch, who somehow discovered such an authentic and intimate and personal relationship with God that he just sort of ceased to exist. And I wonder if that same level of intimacy is not available for us. You know, throughout Christian history and even outside of Christian history, this has been sort of the, the, the holy grail of Christian living, is living a life so close to God that at some point your problems just seem to disappear. They just don't matter anymore. It's called different things. The church fathers called it a beatific vision. Some of us would speak about it as a, an immediate intimacy with God, a, an immediate and direct relationship with God. Uh, sometimes it's called uh, theosis, that is the, the actual the absorption of the divine within us. Whatever you want to call it, here's the deal. It's available to you. God really does invite us into a relationship with Him that is so intense, so intimate, and so personal that in some ways our problems and our troubles just fade away. And what I really want you to know is that when you find that relationship, you'll find peace, you'll find hope. All the storms of life will be blunted. They won't mean that much to you. I want to walk this walk with you for the next few minutes. I do have to say, to be uh, fully honest with you and confessional, I've caught glimpses of this in my life. But I can't say that I've fully walked it. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's my own weakness, because I'm not suggesting it's unavailable. I'm just suggesting I haven't quite availed myself of it. But the times I've caught the glimpses, it's dawned on me, this really is the kind of life that will sustain me in the difficult times. And when the days just drag out, it's available to all of us, an intimate relationship where suddenly it's as though I no longer exist because God and I are so close. I'll give you a real quick illustration of what it can be like. Some of you have fallen in love. Maybe some of you who are younger, you're just now falling in love, perhaps even for the first time. You'll remember the feelings of falling in love. So when you fall in love, oftentimes all your problems go away. The only thing you're thinking about is that relationship with her, or if you're a woman, that relationship with him. Um, everything else seems uh, unimportant. You're willing to do silly things, risky and foolish things, because the love is just so compelling. Maybe that's what Enoch discovered. It's such an intense love with God 
that the losses and the hurts and the pains of the world, they just kind of didn't matter much anymore. Here's my question. Would you like to taste that? Even for a little while, would you like to taste that? So actually, I think it's available to us. And I'll just walk us through that for just a moment. The first thing I want to make sure you understand is that you don't have to go someplace else to find it. If you can't find the truth right where you are, where in the world do you think you'll find it? If you can't find the presence of a God who's always with us everywhere we go, there's no reason to go anywhere else. He's already here. So Scripture affirms this in many places. Here are just a couple of them. Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah is speaking to the, to the uh, Jewish people, and he says, look, there's no place you can hide from God. He's not just a God who's near us. He's also a God who's far away from us. He fills the heaven and the earth. And this uh, well-known text from Psalm 139, the old King James pops out of my mouth sometimes, whither can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of dawn and settle on the far side, I'll say, even there, your hand will guide me. That is, God is, he's always here. When Paul is preaching to the Athenians, he says, look, God is not far away from any of us. It is in God that we live and breathe and have our being. What I want you to see is that God is already here. You don't have to go someplace else to find God. He's right here with us. That he really is already filling the world around you and already living within you. So the question that we're exploring is not where is God? The question is why am I not aware of God? It's a real different question. And I'll just pause to say that many of us have had those moments, usually in extreme circumstances, at a time of great loss or maybe a time of disaster, maybe in a health crisis, where actually it is as though the curtain of heaven was rolled back and we saw God. Have you had that? Many of you have had that. So you've heard my well-known story now of actually seeing angels in the middle of a crisis. And many of you have told me you've had those experiences where in the middle of some severe moment, a trial, suddenly you feel the presence of a holy and loving God. One of our members was, uh, is a Vietnam veteran. I've actually told his story uh, with his permission before. Near mortally wounded in the jungles of Vietnam, his platoon had to pull back. He's left on the front where he's dying. He says as he passes in and out of consciousness, this is a, a white southern guy, a Hispanic man comes and comforts him, consoles him, and then drags him back where he's taken to the hospital. Later he goes to find out who is this guy that saved my life, only to be told by the platoon leader, there are no Hispanic people and none of us has any idea how you got back because we didn't go to get you. We've had individual members in hospital. We've had people here who've had after-death experiences, died on the operating table, literally died. Suddenly experienced the overwhelming love and peace of God and then come back to tell the story. Carlos Martinez was one of our missionaries. I said Colombia before he was in Honduras. Two different times Carlos told me before he passed away, God visited him, wants to tell him you're about to have a heart attack. Carlos was so convinced it was from God, he got in the car and drove to the hospital and had his heart attack when he got to the hospital. A second time, an angel appeared while Carlos and his wife were sleeping, and the angel said, your house is being broken into. Carlos got into a conversation with the angel saying, I don't hear anything. And finally, he got up to check, and sure enough, his house has been broken into. Many of you have told me you've had those similar experiences. I could go through a lot of them. 
I just want you to know maybe in extreme circumstances that, as T.S. Eliot calls it, that third man shows up. That comforting, powerful, reassuring presence of a God who says, hey, I never left. I was always here. And what I want to suggest to you is if he's here in those extreme moments, he was already there. You sometimes you just got to pull back the curtain and see the God who's already here. He didn't suddenly come in the middle of a trial. It's just you didn't notice him until the trial occurred. So why is it that we don't um, oftentimes, why is it that I personally don't live fully aware of the presence of God when he invites me to do it? And when, at least when I'm preparing for a sermon, I sure want to do it. And I have to be honest with you, sometimes I'm not sure I want to be that close to God. I'm being honest with you. Let me give you three quick reasons. These are some, these texts are a little bit harsher than, than what I'm going to, the point I'm going to draw, but, they're, but they certainly state it. The first thing I just want to say is that in some senses, the God of secularism has just blinded us where we just don't see God. Here's a way to put it. That's how Paul says it. He says, the God of this age is blind to the minds of unbelievers, so they cannot see the light of the gospel. I'll just talk about it in terms of um, what secularism tells us about all the functions of the universe. So, uh, let's just use a storm. Secularism says, so science will tell us, and by the way, we're all pro-science. We live lives so vastly better than the lives of anybody for us. We never want to be perceived as somehow anti-science. It's one of the greatest gifts God ever gave us. But we do need to recognize the limitations of science. Science is really good at answering how questions, but it was not designed to answer why questions. So a storm, I can tell you how a storm comes up scientifically. A warm air mass, a cool air mass collide. When they collide, the instability, uh, the, 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 water mo- the moisture in the air sort of uh, uh, forms into drops. The instability forms the lightning and all this sort of stuff. But that doesn't tell me why there's air in the first place. It doesn't tell me why I'm in a universe where there's heat and where there's coolness. It doesn't answer the why questions. But sometimes we allow ourselves to be satisfied just with the how questions and never get to the why questions. Things like beauty and aesthetics, those are why questions, not how questions. Justice is not a how question. The soul's need for justice, that's a why question. That's a spiritual question. That's a God question. Just science is just not designed to answer the question, why do we need justice? It's not designed to answer that question. That's a question that God answers. When you're riding down the road and you see someone who's injured, perhaps in an automobile accident, that need you feel to pull over and help them, that's not a science question. That's a spiritual question. What I want you to see is sometimes we just don't ask the right questions. We're not asking good enough questions. We're asking, how did that happen? A better question sometimes at least is, why do I want this? Why is this happening? Why do I have this desire in me? Why was I made this way? Why this yearning for for love and for intimacy? Sometimes we just don't ask the right questions. So ask good, healthy questions. God, what are you doing in this marriage? God what, God, what are you doing in this pandemic? So, like, we can explain pandemics. Uh, I can't. But we have people who can. How it happens. A virus, whatever that is. For a Christian, there's another question that has to be asked. Why? God, what do you want us to do with this? What are you up to in the middle of this? Hang on. I'm just suggesting sometimes we ask short questions when we could be asking long questions. So, 
Here's the second problem. Oftentimes, Isaiah raises the problem, it's not that God's arm is too short, it is that our sin separates us from God. And we could pursue this from the angle of a holy God doesn't fellowship unholiness, and that's a true statement. But there's actually a different way to think about this, and it's just simply the limitations of the human mind. The limitations of the human mind. So if you're busy looking at pornography, a real good example, the, the, the mind doesn't have room for God when it's busy looking at pornography. You can look at pornography or you can develop an intimacy with God, but you can't do both. It's just not possible. That's why I say in some cases, we actually want God to step out of the room so we can commit our sin. And then when he's out of the room, we wonder, where's God when I need him? Well, easy. You asked him to step out. You didn't want him around. So when you, men, when we get all angry over things, when we exercise, so many men have a problem with anger. When we exercise that anger, we're really in a sense saying, Lord, will you just step out so I can be all about me for a few moments? When you do that, all of a sudden you can't find God. You know why? It's not because he's too short-armed to reach you. It's because you asked him to step out of the room. Sometimes just our own sinfulness just says to God, hey, not now. Will you just leave the room for now? And then I'll say this. Uh, so when Paul's talking about the sins that separate us, he says, um, he says it, there are times when nobody seems to seek God. So I just say this. A lot of times we're just too busy to think about it. Maybe one reason why God pulls back the veil of his own constant presence in emergency situations is because that's when he's got our attention. The rest of the time, we're all busy. We're doing our thing, taking care of our needs, caring for the family, you know, building your empire, whatever it is that you're doing. A lot of times, that's what we're doing. We, you know, we're, we, we got our new house. We're so excited about it. Or, uh, you know, I'm in my new career. Everything's going great. Or, you know, I'm, I'm cultivating my newest hobby or my newest source of recreation or whatever it is. We're doing all those things. And we just, honestly, just not really seeking God. I just want to suggest to you that when that is occurring, that distraction is occurring, you're the one who's missing out. I mean, it's not like God left. You just quit looking at him. Started looking elsewhere. So what do I do? I want to restore this role of God in my life, this, this constant sense of God's presence. And I'll just give you a couple of texts here, and then we'll be done. You know, let me just remind you of this. God wants to be found. So he's not hiding from you. He wants to be found. He's all around you. He's already here. He's not going anywhere. He's always been here. He will always be here. He wants to be found. So what he says to us, if you seek me, you'll be found. I mean, I'll be found. You'll find me. I'll make myself found. James' way of putting that in chapter 4 and verse 8, if you come near to God, well, he'll come near to you. Or one of the tastiest Old Testament text, Psalm 34 and verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. So what each of these has in common is an invitation. Take another step. Like I really want, God's saying, I really want to be part of your life. I want to bless your every moment with an awareness of my presence. I want to do that for you. So, so ask me. I want to say this as well, and again, I, I say this as a, as a sufferer um, of one who's, who's not been faithful to the sermon I'm preaching. 
when we do this, when we seek the Lord, I'll show you a text in a moment, when we pray without ceasing, we really do find the peace God wants us to have. I mean, it's really, it's the peace that you're looking for. I think at the end of the day, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for a peace that the Bible says is a peace that passes understanding. We're looking for a sense inside, everything is okay and it's going to be okay. That's what we're looking for. Everything's okay, it's going to be okay. You will find that when you're constantly aware of a God who walks with you, who loves you, and who will be faithful to all of his promises. So here's one way we think about this, as Paul puts in 1 Thessalonians 4. By the way, all three of these are really great ways for us to experience an awareness of the presence of God, to rejoice, to be prayer, uh, prayerful, and then also to be giving thanks. All of those bring um, the presence of God to the surface of our senses. But I just focus on the second one there, which is to pray without ceasing. God gives the gift of unceasing prayer. That is the constant sense of awareness that God is with me. And if you're wondering how do I pray without ceasing, let, let me give you, first of all, let me say this. Prayer without a ceasing is a gift that God gives us. Um, so you can work really hard at prayer without ceasing. And my opinion is you can be really frustrated with that. Many of us have tried that. You know, I'm going to try harder, just try harder, just try harder. But there's actually another way for us to experience the presence of God in unceasing prayer. So it's, uh, it's what psychologists often call reticular activation or the reticular activating system. Here's what it is. It's when you start to look for God or name God and you get in the habit of that, all of a sudden you start to see God everywhere. That's your reticular activating system. So here's an analogy. Uh, let's say that you, uh, you decide you're going to go buy a Nissan Titan truck. Now, odds are you haven't seen a Nissan Titan truck in a month or so. Not because they haven't been there. You just weren't paying attention. But the minute you decide you're going to buy one, guess what you're going to see all over the interstate? Everywhere you go, you're going to see a Nissan Titan truck. That's your reticular activating system. It's not that there's suddenly more of them. It's just you weren't paying any attention. Now that you started paying attention, you see them everywhere. So my favorite illustration of this is... Uh, Years ago, I started noticing DY or DMY, my initials, on license plates. Once I noticed it, I pointed out to the kids. I was being playful with the kids. I would start telling the kids, you see, there's my initial on a license plate. God's sending us a message. He wasn't. I was just joking with the kids. So this is a serious, there are a lot of serious points in this sermon, but I wasn't serious when I said that, but I was making them think I was serious just to harass them. But what I noticed was every time I turned around, there was another DY or DMY license plate. I mean, they're all over the place. And then I started noticing DY in books. I'd be reading a book and I started noticing DY is everywhere. And I started thinking of all the ways that my name shows up or abbreviations. So we were traveling in Europe and over there, the license plates were all DY and DMY. So in 2009, John and I, were, uh, I was speaking in uh, Lancaster, England. We were there, we decided to go down to Stonehenge. So it's 2009, my sweet young son there trying his best to put on a decent smile. And as he's standing in front of Stonehenge, I said to him before we got there, I said, now you know probably my initials are somewhere carved in Stonehenge because that was my joke to my kids. We're standing there joking and so forth. I just want you to know, no doctoring on these pictures. I want you to see if you notice anything on Stonehenge. There as we stand are my initials 
carved into ancient Stonehenge. And I told my son, I said, well, you know, probably that means I'm going to be in a tornado or something like that. I really did say that. I'm not making that up. Now even I'm spooked about it. Even I don't want to see DY anymore. But my point is, once you see it once, you start seeing it everywhere. That's your reticular activating system. We all have it. Here's what I'm suggesting. Start to pray without ceasing. Just start, just start somewhere. Just start saying, Lord, what were you doing this morning? Lord, what were you doing there? Lord, why were, were you showing me here? Once you start to see the answers to those, Lord, what were you doing questions, you'll start to see God everywhere. And you'll start to learn that He's a loving God who really cares about you. A God of great peace and a God who offers profound joy. You see, God wants to be found. He invites us to this same kind of relationship that he had with this, um, well, this fellow, Enoch, who walked with God, ceased to exist because God said, hey, I think we're one now. God offers us that same relationship. Hey, maybe, I don't want to speak for God, not in this sense at least, maybe that's what we're supposed to get out of the pandemic as individuals to learn to walk with God, to learn to trust God, to learn to know He's, he's going to take care of this. He's going to take care of this. I, I'll say this, when we get on the other side of this pandemic, y'all slap me silly if I forget that God got us through this. If I forget that He was with us every step of the way, you slap me silly. If we forget that it was our God who saw the beginning and the end of this thing and said, watch what I do with this. Y'all slap me silly because I'm telling you, God is with us every step of the way. The only question is, do we see him? And so I don't know who's going to be at your house for Christmas this year, but I can tell you one person who's going to be there. We sing, oh, Emmanuel, it's a song about Emmanuel. Emmanuel is the name for Jesus in this text. Joseph falls asleep. He's betrothed to uh, Mary. A betrothal in his day was um, most likely meant that the marriage had been arranged from, from birth. It was very common back then. So it's a very serious arrangement. Suddenly, Mary turns up pregnant. Joseph's not sure what to do. He decides to put her away quietly. He falls asleep. An angel shows up and says, hey, don't, don't, don't put her away because it's the Holy Spirit who conceived this baby in Mary. And then he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So here's what I'm telling you. No matter who is or who cannot be with you this Christmas because of COVID or distance or whatever else is going on, Emmanuel's going to be there. He was always there. All he asks is this, walk with me. Walk with me, and I will be found. So I love this verse, this sweet verse. He'll be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us or God with us. What I really like, and the, the next part of verse 24 I put up, Joseph woke up. So that's what I'm charging you to do. Wake up and see the God who's already here. You don't have to have a crisis to see him. And you won't have to go to the hospital and have an after-death experience or be on the battlefield or find yourself in some terrible crisis. He's already here. And he says, seek me, and I will be found. So why don't we stand up?
We're going to sing a song, and I invite you this Christmas time to see the God who's already here. Let's sing.